Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Show number 30 of the podcast that strives every single week to bring you fighting talk with a distinctly British flavour. My name's Simon Head, and joining me, as always, is Mr. Chamat Karsandu. Now, for those of you out there who listen to the show regularly, you'll probably know, you might have picked it up, that in addition to our love of MMA, we also share a love of professional wrestling. Now, Sandu, I was up all night watching UFC 209 on Saturday night and then stupidly repeated the trick last night watching WWE Fastlane. Please tell me you didn't make the same mistake I did because I am suffering today. I didn't actually. I actually just finished watching Fastlane about an hour ago. So I kept that aside for my, I suppose, uh, Monday afternoon post-lunch uh, viewing uh, pleasure. Um, and uh, I mean, we can go into a whole other podcast about uh, the reaction review of that particular uh, pay-per-view, as the WWE likes to call it, uh, or special attraction. Um, but yeah, it's tough going sometimes. If you're a, if you're a pro wrestling fan and an MMA fan uh, in the UK uh, or anywhere in Europe, really, uh, to keep up and follow along, especially when it's a double-header weekend like it was this past weekend. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you definitely did the right thing. You definitely did the right thing, <laughs> holding on and watching it. Watching it at a more sociable hour. Um, this week's show, we're talking MMA. This is an MMA podcast. And on this week's show, we're going to look back at the aforementioned UFC 209, which promised much as we led into fight week. And as it turned out, it delivered plenty. But I think most people walked away from that event feeling more than a little bit disappointed. We'll explain why that was. And we will also explain why there were plenty of reasons to be cheerful after that event. We will also chat about a very lively press conference that took place on the Friday of Fight Week over there in Las Vegas as Britain's own Michael the Count Bisbing, UFC middleweight champion Michael Bisbing, no less, pitched up a little bit late for his press conference, did a Connor, as, uh, as, as we like to say in the business, and uh, proceeded to talk trash to the oh-so-polite George St. Pierre. Those two will be getting it on in the octagon, we think probably during International Fight Week. We will talk about that press conference that took place last Friday. We'll also cast our eyes forward to this coming weekend where the UFC travels down to Fortaleza, Brazil for UFC Fight Night Belfort versus Gastelum. And we'll also let you know about a huge show that's taking place right here on British soil on Saturday night as Russian promotion ACB pitches up in Manchester for ACB 54 Supersonic. And I'll tell you a little story about that as well. Sandu. We've had a busy weekend, UFC 209, we had so much expectation going into this event and the wheels kind of fell off. Um, we lost the co-main event on weigh day and then the main event just didn't really deliver. We had plenty of other stuff going on but let's focus on those two stories because they really were the stories that defined the weekend. Let's talk about the fight that never was to start with. Khabib Nurmagomedov taking on El Kukui, Tony Ferguson. It was the fight that everyone was absolutely itching to see, the people's main event, whatever you want to call it, and then it didn't happen. Khabib was taken ill, the fight got scrapped, there was no replacement bout, and uh, everyone was left feeling very depressed on Twitter on Friday evening. Um, where were you when you heard the news, and what was your what was your reaction when you heard about it? Um... I, th- I think I was just coming back home after work, actually, on Friday, and I was just checking my feed, and obviously, you know, Vegas is about eight hours behind, and the the weigh-ins, had, the official weigh-ins had just finished, 
and Khabib didn't make weight and well he didn't even turn up and just shortly after that the announcement was made that the fight was off and utter, utter deflation is the, uh, the only way I, I think I could describe it because like you said Simon that was the one fight it, I mean you you could put that on any any uh, card that can headline any card anywhere in the world for, for the hardcore MMA community that is just it doesn't get any better than that it really does not get any better than that and in many people's eyes you know Ferguson and Khabib are regarded individually as arguably the best lightweights in the world you know although Conor McGregor's got the championship so that's just how highly rated these two fighters are and were heading into this weekend so and this is the third time that the UFC have tried to put this fight together and um and and once again it's it's not come through to fruition which is just a utter shame total devastation what can you say i mean will they try to make it again in the future who knows uh if they do uh, i th- i think nobody's going to get excited about it until they're both in the octagon and bruce buffer's calling out their names you know so yeah i mean what can you say just really really disappointed devastated i believe um ferguson was paid um not sure if he was paid his entire show money uh, but it looks like Dana White said in the post-fight press conference that he was kind of taken care of. Um, Khabib, it looks like, was about five and a half, six pounds overweight, um, which is, you know, that's very, very interesting. You know, and I think there's been lots of conversations and maybe we can go into this a little bit more about weight classes in general. There's a massive jump from 155 to 170, then 170 to 185. Um, I think there's been lots of chatter uh, and it's come up again recently, you know, whether the, the, the weight class should be jumping up you know, in 10 pounds, you know, 155, 165, 175, 185. Um, but well, at, at the moment, the way things stand, you know, can you can you really book Khabib versus uh, Conor McGregor, you know, and, and risk him potentially coming in um, overweight or not making way at all, you know? So I think right now, as things potentially stand, if McGregor's going to come back and defend his lightweight title, Tony Ferguson is in the driving seat because um, he's on a win streak like Khabib, but he made weight. You know, he, he, you know, he acted like a true professional and I'm not taking anything away from Khabib and I'm sure there's, you know, some medical issues there. I don't know. Who knows what the issues are? Maybe it's medical. Maybe it's uh, the wrong preparation coming into fight week. Uh, but the bottom line is he didn't get it done and that's going to be an asterisk on him moving forward. Yeah, I, it was kind of interesting looking at the different responses from people online when, when the news came out. I think it was our friend Ken Hathaway actually broke the news. He, I think he was the first person to uh, to mention that 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 the fight was confirmed as being off. Um, there were a lot of people who were obviously very disappointed. I think everyone was very disappointed. I think that goes without saying. Some people were really hammering into Khabib and and, and criticising him for being unprofessional um, and just not not going about his due diligence in terms of making sure he was ready to cut weight and, and in a position where he didn't have too much to do ahead of the weigh-in. I, I didn't really like that too much. I think... You know, we don't know what was going on with, uh, with 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 Khabib on the day. We don't know he may have had he may have had an underlying illness which made the cut just that little bit more difficult. He's a big guy for 155 anyway, um, and uh, yeah, it's difficult. And the other thing to bear in mind, he was admitted to the hospital the night before, so that was that that sort of early during the weight cut. If you or you know he's you know you're just starting to ramp up the weight cut at that stage, I would imagine. Um, then get some sleep, have him taken most of the weight off, and then you maybe lose the last five or six pounds in the morning for the weigh-in. 
uh, with it being early morning wanes. But yeah, we don't know, and, and we still don't know exactly what happened. And uh, I found some of the criticism of Khabib a little bit, a little bit premature. I think we need to know the full story before before we can really cast judgment on 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 his level of professionalism. What can't be ignored is the fact that Khabib has has well fights involving Khabib Nurmagomedov have fallen through almost more 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 regularly than the fights have actually gone through. If that makes sense, I mean, I'm, yeah. Um, you can go on Sherdog and look at a fighter's record, or sometimes you can go on Wikipedia and look at a fighter's record, but that doesn't always highlight the fights that they miss. Tapology is a great website to actually see the story of a fighter's career because they include the fights that were made and then didn't make it. So it's really interesting looking down that list. He's he's missed, as you mentioned, Sandu, he's missed three fights with Ferguson. Uh, he was obviously hospitalised this, this past week and couldn't fight this past weekend. Ferguson was injured leading up to the uh, the previous fight that they were booked in, which would have been uh, March last year. Sorry, April last year. And uh, he was also due to face Ferguson in the Tough 22 finale way back in December 2015. So it's... it's And, and, and that, that, that was a rib injury. He's also pulled out of two Donald Cowboy Cerrone fights as well. So... It's it's a really difficult one. He's you know I think McGregor labelled him a, a serial pullout merchant, and you know the record the record suggests that Connor's tr- you know he's speaking the truth there. So you just hope that Khabib's healthy and okay, and that whatever the problem was, it was just an isolated incident to that particular weekend, and that it's something that he can move on from because that's a fight I think everybody wants to see. Yeah, um, he's too good a fighter to to be completely drying himself out. If he if if he is struggling at 155, then maybe he does need to look at 170. I don't know how big he'd be as a 170 fighter, but if he can't make 155 safely, uh, then maybe that's what needs to happen. Uh, you mentioned Tony Ferguson there, and you say he's in the box seat, and I, I totally agree with you. What what would you do next? I mean, it's kind of an, it's an interesting situation. In terms of both fighters, you've got, Tony Ferguson, who really needed to beat Khabib in order to put himself at the top of the list, and a win over Khabib really would have strengthened his position for a fight with McGregor. Um, He didn't get to fight him. And I know you said that he's jumped him in the queue, and I can't argue with that. He definitely has at this point. But he hasn't furthered his case. He hadn't had the opportunity, so... He's all. He's almost like a win by default. Do you know what I mean? You know, it, yeah. it, it, obviously, it, it, it's not a win because you know the actual contest never, you know, never began. But he now stands above Khabib, surely, as the top contender in that division, without actually having done, having actually done anything to further his claim, except for stand on the scales. So, what would you do next if you're the UFC with Tony Ferguson, and what would you do next with Khabib? Right. So this might be a little bit unpopular. But I would actually try and book this fight one more time. And if they're going to do it, I'd want them to do it pretty quickly. Khabib Nurmagomedov does recognize Ramadan. Ramadan starts at the end of May on the 26th. And that will go all the way through until the end of June. Um, And then I'm sure he'll need some time to kind of um, get back up to usual eating and drinking habits thereafter. And I don't think, I mean, Tony Ferguson hasn't fought since last November. Um, and he's in tip-top shape right now. I would say maybe try and rebook this fight um, on a card, perhaps sometime in May, 
um, just to kind of let Khabib, you know, figure out what he needs to figure out. I don't know if it, that requires um, someone like a, a Mike Dolce or someone like that to really monitor him throughout camp. Someone who's got a hundred percent record of every fighter that he's taken care of making weight. So that would be a good shout. Um, but at the same time, I would actually, um, if I'm the UFC and you know they can do this, I'm sure they can. I'd actually pay Michael Johnson to go through a camp, make weight as a backup. Um, and perhaps this might be something um, that the UFC can kind of implement into this strategy uh, moving forward, especially when it comes to title fights, is in case one of the two um, contenders for that championship does uh, miss weight, doesn't make the fight, especially at the last minute. We're talking 24 hours before the fight's supposed to go ahead, which is crazy. But to have somebody who also makes weight and is ready to, to rock and roll and go the next day. Now, Michael Johnson is someone that was ready to step up on you know very last last minute notice and was actually on MMA Junkie Radio and they were trying to get it done uh, but I think Tony Ferguson wasn't able to agree to the, the new terms and conditions of it not being a title fight uh, it obviously would have been for less money but um, you know Michael Johnson is somebody that has beaten Tony Ferguson so if anything at least then you're A still contending for uh, an interim lightweight championship um, and B uh, it's against somebody that's already beaten you so it's able, you're able to kind of almost kill two birds with one stone Um and at least then, if you're fighting sometime in May, you know, McGregor is supposed to be coming back um, from his self-imposed exile while he takes care of his missus giving birth. And she's meant to, you know, uh, drop the baby sometime in May herself. So timing-wise, that could work out well. Again, this is all, you know, in relation to McGregor coming back and defending his lightweight championship and, 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 and putting the X on any other potential option out there, whether that be in the UFC or elsewhere. But that's what I do. I try and book it one final time and have Michael Johnson pay him uh, to go through a camp and to make weight just in case Khabib falls out um, at the last minute as a plan B. What do you think? I think that's a solid plan. I have a similar plan, but it's not exactly the same. I wouldn't make the fight again, but I, okay. would, I would put them on the same card. Um, what I would do at this point, I would do... Tony Ferguson versus Nate Diaz. That's the fight I would do because the winner of that, and I would do that for the interim belt, um, and the winner of that is absolutely the best person to then go on and face McGregor and also is the most reliable person to go on and face McGregor. So you do the deal for the McGregor fight while you do the deal for that fight. So that it's a, you know there's no messing around with contractual negotiations. You do the deal for two fights. So it's the you do the deal for the Ferguson Diaz fight, and then you then do the deal that if you win, you get this to face McGregor. And then you see so it's all tied up. There's no messing around. There's no will he won't he after the after the fact. You lock it in early. That's the that's your main event, if you like. Your co main event, I think Khabib now needs to prove that he can make 155 pounds. I think just proving he can make 155 pounds isn't enough. Um, I think Ferguson, I think, deserves to fight for an interim title because he should have done before. Um, I think Khabib has a, has, has a little bit of making up to do. I would do Khabib versus Michael Chiesa on the same card. Uh, I think Michael Chiesa, looking down that list of lightweights um, and in terms of breaking someone into the championship picture who perhaps isn't already there yet, Kiesa is the most dangerous guy who hasn't really been given a push yet. So I would, and I think stylistically, that would be a really interesting fight to watch. 
Khabib and his, his sort of smash mouth wrestling style against an elite grappler in Michael Chiesa, who is criminally underrated as a UFC lightweight. So that would be my co-main. And the benefit of having that as the co-main is if you have an issue with the main event, obviously one of the two co-main event guys can step up. But I think Ferguson versus Diaz, I think, is 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 the fight to make now. I think uh, I think Khabib had his opportunity there, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But he has pulled out of, or oh, he he's um, you know his fights with Tony Ferguson seem jinxed. We've had three three chances of this. I think things need to move before maybe he gets back up there. So that's what I would do. I like your idea just as much, but that's what I would do. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I like either. To be honest with you, I like what your where your head's at. And again, if you bring Nate Diaz into the equation, a you've got a proven draw. B you've got somebody that's got a rivalry with Conor McGregor. Uh, and C you know if McGregor is going to come back and not do the whole Mayweather thing, and somehow Nate Diaz does win that interim title, then you just got arguably the biggest fight of the year on your hands in that trilogy fight to unify both titles. So yeah, I think. Um, Either which way, that you know, both options would make a hell of a lot of sense. I think it's the only realistic fight that you can drag Diaz back in for that doesn't involve Connor as well. I think, mm. I think I can imagine Nate Diaz and Tony Ferguson uh, riffing off each other quite nicely during a during fight week. They're you know they're both uh, sort of no nonsense characters when it comes to dealing with dealing with fight week and dealing with the press. I think it would make for an entertaining fight week. I think the fight would be dynamite as well. So. Um, and it acts as it also gets Nate back in the picture again, um, which I think the fans would love to see, irrespective of what Conor McGregor is uh, is planning for the rest of the year. That was the co-main event that didn't happen. Let's talk about the main event that did happen, but it didn't really go the way we were hoping. Um, we were both in Madison Square Garden, Sandu, yeah. for the first the first five rounds of Tyron Woodley versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, and it was a cagey fight. It was a cagey fight, but it was entertaining. It was intriguing. There was enough action in the fight to keep people on the edge of their seat without it becoming an absolute slugfest. But it was it was a good fight. This second fight, I think everyone, including... I know I certainly did. I suspect you did as well. We're both hopeful that having had a good look at each other for five rounds, the inhibitions might not necessarily be there now. And they know that if I just put my foot on the pedal a little bit more in this fight, I can take this guy. As it turned out, the opposite happened. Tyron Woodley spent most of the fight circling and backpedaling around the edge of the octagon. Thompson kind of pushed some sort of pace, but not much, and didn't really pull the trigger again. Um, and was, if anything, more timid than he was in the first fight. How did you score that fight? There was, a, it was, it was a really tricky fight to watch. And a tricky fight to score. If you're going to score the fight, you've got to have your eyes glued to it. And and I I, I thought it was a really tricky fight to score. The judges uh, gave it a majority decision to Woodley, 48-47, twice, and one judge scored it a 47-47 draw. How did you score it? I gave Thompson round one 10-9. Yeah. I gave Thompson round two 10-9. I gave Woodley round three 10-9. I gave Thompson round four ten nine, and I gave Woodley round five ten nine. So I actually scored it forty eight forty seven in favour of Stephen Thompson. Uh, and I'm kind of glad that you mentioned the the first fight at Madison Square Garden because I saw a lot of chatter 
on 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 Twitter about people calling, oh, it's, it's a chess match. I said, no, the first fight was a chess match. That's as close as a quote unquote chess match as you're going to get in MMA. Very, you know, edge of your seat stuff. Very cagey. Um, there were a few moments of inactivity even in that fight, but it led to something. It led to moments throughout the fight, which was kind of you know very interesting to kind of absorb as the fight was playing out over the course of 25 minutes. This was the op- this was the opposite. This wasn't this wasn't a chess match. There was just so much inactivity going on that it kind of asked the question: What are you doing? What you what are you in there for? You know, you're supposed to be fighting. You know, and I actually thought. Um, the referee may have even kind of stepped in and had a word with both of them just for timidity, you know what I mean? Uh, But they didn't. Um, You know, Dan Hardy was very kind of, I suppose, uh, blunt with his assessment of the fight going online, calling it uh, the worst welterweight title fight he's ever seen. I went a little bit further than that, and I've called it the worst title fight in UFC history. Um, The other fight that came to mind at the time was Anson Silva and Damian Meyer. Um, and I haven't seen that fight in quite some time, to be frank. And why would I? Um, but, you know, those two fights are 1A and 1B in just terms of um, lack of lack of fighting. They, they just weren't fighting. You had a, uh, you know, a moment in that third round when Woodley took him down and uh, pinned him against the cage on the mat um, for about a minute or two. And then you had that flurry in the last, kind of, let's say, 45 seconds or so where finally Woodley kind of let loose uh, the guns um, and, he, and he rocked what, uh, Thompson. And I thought, you know, John McCarthy was close to stepping in to, to stop the fight because it looked like uh, Thompson might have been out there for a, for a second. Um, but it wasn't to be. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm calling it the worst title fight in UFC kind of history, Simon. Um, Dan Hardy's calling it the worst title fight in welterweight history. What's your assessment? Is that the worst title fight that you've ever seen? There's a bit of recency bias in this, obviously, because it's the one that's freshest in the in in the mind. I'm struggling to think of a a less exciting title fight. I've got to be honest. Um, the thing the thing that struck me, and I, I I agreed with your scoring, by the way. That's exactly how I scored it. Um, I know some people were suggesting that um, the last round maybe could have been a ten eight. I don't think so. I think Thompson was winning the round. And was winning it relatively clearly. And then Woodley just exploded in the last 25, 30 seconds. Um, And uh, I think even the Nevada Athletic Commission chairman, uh, Bob Bennett, got up in front of the media in in a press conference, which is almost unheard of, and said that someone scored it. One of the judges actually scored it a 10-8, and he told him that that was an unacceptable score. Because you can't have a, you can't have like a, a five point swing, in a space of twenty seconds. That's just not feasible. So, so yeah, and no, I thought I thought that was very interesting. And obviously they're scoring using the, the quotes old scoring criteria. Um, but yeah, no, it, it it wasn't a good fight. It wasn't a good fight. The thing that struck me was, Tyron Woodley looked like he was fighting a fighting, with as as someone who was almost scared to lose. And um, Wonderboy Thompson was fighting like someone who almost seemed scared to get, you know, scared to get hit. He he he'd been rocked in the first fight. He was being very wary of Woodley's power. I know, you know, Woodley was saying he was trying to bait Thompson in and then counter, but really, I, you know, after two or three rounds of nothing, 
you've got to reassess your game plan and you know someone needs to say to him okay we need to up the work rate here we need to we need to go for takedowns you need to take a shot or two in order to get the takedown but get a takedown early in the round and make that round dominant you know and he just wasn't you know and and it was it was disappointing and especially when some of the stuff he was saying pre-fight about I want to be the greatest welterweight of all time I am the best welterweight in the world it's hard it's hard to hear those words or read those words back when you know what you just saw in the octagon on Saturday night Tyron Woodley is capable of way better than that and I'm sure we will see way better than that and maybe it's just these two aren't aren't very compatible in terms of their fighting styles I don't know I don't know um but I, I expect Damian Meyer would be relatively cagey himself so is Woodley going to be any different against someone like him I don't know I don't know but hugely disappointing fight I scored it 48-47 for Stephen Wonderboy Thompson I think Tyron Woodley and this is only my my personal opinion I think he can count himself very lucky to still be the UFC welterweight champion of the world um very disappointing main event and we've spoken about this before sometimes you can go to an event and the card can 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 suck almost from top to bottom but the main event can turn it around for you this was kind of that in reverse because well as as, as we go down some of these other fights sandu this card delivered it mm. actually delivered some really good fights uh, yeah. and some of the most exciting fights we've seen this year but because of that main event, everyone's gone away on a bit of a downer. And that's a shame because we, we saw some great stuff. David Tamer versus Lando Venata. Over to you, Sandy. What a fight. What a fight. Yeah. I, and the, the funny thing is, is um, I know that in Vegas, the majority of the media are US-based or certainly North America-based uh, media. And I saw a lot of chatter come out throughout Fight Week. A lot of the coverage was centered around... Um, Lando Venata being this massive prospect, um, almost propping him up on a pedestal. This is going to be his star-making performance. And in fact, when this fight got bumped up to... Actually, no, it wasn't bumped up to the main card. Uh, the women's strawweight fight was bumped up to the main card. But regards to that fact, there was a lot of kind of hype put behind Venata coming into this uh, fight with Tamar um, and kind of like announcing himself on, on the world stage as kind of the next big thing in the 155-pound division. You and me, clearly, on last week's episode, were really, really excited for this particular fight because covering Taymor, as we have on the European circuit, we know what he's capable of. I was fortunate enough to um, have a gym visit to the All-Stars gym a couple of years ago for MMA Junkie and got to spend an entire day uh, with you know at the gym with all the fighters there, um, see them you know, get put through their paces. Um, and, you know, Taymor at the time was just coming off the ultimate fighter and uh you know he's got a very quirky and interesting personality uh i'd say he's very european uh to say the least um but i I was kind of glad to see some of that personality come through and recognize especially the post-fight press conference but that side the actual performance was top-notch one of the most exciting fights i've seen this year Uh, i'd love to see rounds four and five um and six maybe somewhere down the road between these two and i'm sure at some point in the future they will fight again um but what tamal's done now is he's the one that's announced himself onto the world stage and the fact that he's able to put a performance like that on a pay-per-view main card is going to do absolute wonders for him moving forward now what's next you got the stockholm card coming up around the corner it's going to be headlined by his um 
colleague at the All-Stars gym, uh, Alexander Gustafsson, who's going to fight Glover Teixeira. If I'm the UFC and if Taymor can is medically cleared and able to to fight on that card, I'd be putting him up maybe in a maybe a co-main or maybe at least third um, on the main card um, with another notable, recognizable lightweight, someone ranked in the top 15. So I think now you need to start putting the rocket boosters on Taymor. So I think he's got a he's got an interesting personality. And I think we've just, you know, hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of, you know, what his personality and his background. His story hasn't been told yet, but in terms of his fighting style, it was end-to-end stuff. Very, very exciting. Um, and that's exactly the kind of fight our fans tune in for. Yeah, cannot cannot uh, agree more. It was, I was excited for this fight because this was much more than a showcase fight for me. I just, I know a lot of people were looking at it, as you said, as, as a sort of a showcase for Lando and... Maybe a lot, you know. Maybe some of the UFC matchmakers were thinking it. I don't know, but David Tamer is is he's a warrior, and uh, he's one of those guys who, if you can get in the trenches with him and beat him, your stock is going to go through the roof because you're going to have to go through an absolute barn burner to do it. Uh, but Tamer won all three rounds, thirty twenty seven on all three scorecards. It was a competitive fight. It wasn't a complete blowout. Let's be, you know, let's be clear. They both they both stood and traded. They both landed some pretty heavy stuff on each other, but Tamer was the one who who had the upper hand in all three of those rounds. Great performance, um, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, you sort of hinted at the press conference there. He did a little Elvis impression at some point, uh, and uh, no, he was he he's good, and he's got a younger brother who people who know him are telling me that he's even better and he's a featherweight. So uh, interested to see if maybe he gets his shot. I know uh, during the press conference, David, I think he might have even done it in a post-fight interview as well in, in the cage, uh, called the UFC out and said, basically, give my little brother a shot in Stockholm because if you like if you like what you see with me, wait till you've seen him. So you never know. We might see a pair of brothers uh, in in the uh, in on on the Swedish the Swedish fight card together. Who knows? That would be pretty spectacular stuff. Um, love that fight. That was the fight of the night. $50,000 to the pair of them. Much, much deserved. But there were some strong contenders. We had a couple of huge upsets that, that preceded that co-main event. Dan Kelly upsetting Rashad Evans, who looked like a million dollars. Actually, you know, he was cut like a stripping steak, wasn't he? Did you see the... You see the condition of the man when he got into the octagon. He looked phenomenal. He looked like a superhero. He didn't fight like a superhero. He fought like someone who'd been out for a long time and was sort of sort of sort of blowing the cobwebs off a little bit. Dan Kelly did a really good job. It was a close competitive fight. I scored it for Kelly. The two of the three judges scored it for Kelly. Twenty nine twenty eight in his favour. Third, uh, the uh, the third judge gave it twenty twenty nine twenty eight for Rashad. Some people are saying Rashad's done. I don't agree with that, Sandu. Um, do you think there's there's still a bit more mileage left on the uh, on the Rashad Evans clock at 185 pounds, or do you think that perhaps now might be the time to start start looking at hanging him up? Look, can he compete with some of the fighters in the UFC middleweight division? 100%. Can he beat them? 100%. But if you can't beat Dan Kelly on one leg, then you're certainly not ready for the upper echelon of that division. You're certainly not ready for uh, the guys that are you know, contesting for the title. So it depends what Rashad wants to do. He's still a massive name in the UFC. Um, like I said, he, he can still 
you know, do the business. I mean, he didn't get knocked out. He didn't get submitted. He didn't get finished in, in that fight. It's just he got he got outpointed, you know, by Dan Kelly. He got the better of him over 15 minutes. But I just don't know where Rashad goes from here. I mean, it, had he won, I was all ready to kind of put the, the push behind getting him and Anderson Silva into a fight, which I think would have made a lot of sense, given where they are in their career right now, both massive uh, marquee names, and they were supposed to fight uh, many, many years ago anyway, when Richard was kind of teasing the idea of, of coming down to middleweight, and it was to you know try and fight Anderson Silva. But he lost, you know. I don't know what you do with him next in terms of matchmaking, um, and I guess it's all going to come down to what Richard wants to do, you know. But if he does fight again, uh, and he loses again, you know, it's just going to diminish his his legacy a little bit further. It's already taken quite a bit of a pounding, no pun intended, over the last couple of years, given his losses, given some of the injury setbacks that he's had and bits and pieces. So, look, he's already got an analyst, an analyst gig with Fox. Um, so I'm sure he's going to have a wonderful career after the fight game. Uh, I think he needs to assess what he actually wants to do um, with the time that he has left with the fight game. Um, so... I, I'm not. I'm not ready to kind of pull the trigger on on saying he's completely done. I, I, I wouldn't go that far. But I, I'm just a bit at a loss as to what you do with him next. Yeah, I wonder whether the UFC might be able to make some use of him for some of the developing market cards. So, for example, they've got a, a, a show in Singapore happening later this year, and they're going to put some local talent on those shows, obviously. But to have a marquee name, a former world champion towards the top of that card, whether it be as a main eventer or a co-main eventer, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think using perhaps an ageing former champion who's still still got a few miles left on the clock, maybe that's a good spot for him. Maybe use him part ambassadorial but still active uh, and get him over maybe fighting in Singapore. I think I think that would make a lot of sense to me. Uh, word for Dan Kelly did a, did a great job. Um, he, uh, the scary thing, Sandu, is I'm. He's actually younger than me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, I, I sort of look at him, go, look at that old man in the octagon, and I think, yeah, he's younger than me. So, yeah, I'm officially completely past it. But no, he did. He did a great job. He did a great job and uh, represented us, uh, us old, old cronies very well. Did a did a good job and got himself a win. Cynthia Calvillo uh, looked excellent with her first round submission over Amanda Cooper. Uh, Alistair Overeem and Mark Hunt. We'll talk about that in a second, uh, if we can, Sandy, because we have to talk about the two fights that were in the middle of the preliminary card. Two of the best comebacks you will see in mixed martial arts. And I think if you were going to show somebody who perhaps didn't understand or was looking to understand more about mixed martial arts why this sport is so great, you could show them these two fights back-to-back as they happened on the night. And that would be as, as good an advert for just how for, how quickly fortunes can change and how you've got to be on your game in so many different areas in order to be a success at the highest level of mixed martial arts. First off, Yuri Alcantara was getting his ass handed to him by Luke Sanders, who looked like a million bucks. His girlfriend, Becky Lynch, was in the crowd. Um, I assume it's his girlfriend, am I right? They are dating, aren't they? That's the word around the campfire. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was pretty sure they're dating. So, so uh, WWE uh, Divas champion or form... Well, no, she's not a diva anymore. She's just a SmackDown champion or former SmackDown champion in the crowd cheering on her bow as he was putting on 
a superb performance against Yuri Alcantara. Looked like Alcantara was finished. He was up against the cage. He was down on one knee. He was shipping an incredible amount of punishment from Sanders' punches. And then for reasons that I don't really understand, Sanders then elected to knee Alcantara in the head. Clearly an illegal knee. Everyone was looking at him going, what are you doing? Referee Mark Goddard, British ref, friend of the show, um, his reaction was priceless. He stopped the he stopped the action, pulled Sanders away, and looked at him in disbelief and went, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" It was almost like I was about to stop the fight, and then you need him in the head. What on earth were you thinking of? And uh, ended up lo- uh, taking a point off him. And irony of ironies, that right knee that um, Sanders planted into the side of Alcantara's head ended up being the knee that Alcantara locked up for a knee bar. Uh, And at that point, it's the most uh, nonchalant tap out you'll ever see in the UFC. There was no attempt to fight it. You can't fight a knee bar when it's that deep. And it was almost like he almost shrugged his shoulders and went, yeah, you got me, and tapped out. Um, Incredible comeback, Sandu. Incredible comeback. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two kind of ways of looking at this fight. Um, I think on the one hand, Yuri was on the receiving end of an uncountable number of significant strikes, uh, unanswered significant strikes. And, you know, could Mark perhaps have stopped the fight potentially at that moment? Um, You know, they weren't, I suppose, the, you know, the strongest punches to the face or to the head. Uh, but I think they were consistent enough where and a long period of ma- you know, time had passed where Yuri wasn't able to kind of really uh, do anything. Uh, but credit to Yuri, he got the time allowed by the referee, Mark Goddard, to be able to kind of, you know, I suppose, wrangle his way out of that situation. Um, and, you know, eventually when he got into that situation where he was able to slap on the knee bar, that just goes to show, you know, anything can happen in this sport. Anything can happen, especially when you're as well versed as you are on the ground with jiu-jitsu as Yuri Alcantara is. And I think when the fight wrapped up, everybody was already kind of, and me personally, you know, I was, I was saying, look, this is probably going to be um, in line uh, for comeback of the year. Definitely a nomination for comeback of the year. And, you know, we've still got, you know, the, the, the majority, the lion's share of 2017 to get through, but that could very well be the comeback of the year 2017. But then we got on to the next fight, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll, and I'll allow you to set that one up for us, Simon. Yeah, just very, uh, very quickly on Alcantara. I think the thing that kept him in the fight, when Goddard was telling him to improve his position or saying you've got to move, he was at least trying to move. Um, and he was responding to Goddard's instructions in there. And I think that's ju- I think that is what kept him in the fight. But I don't think there would have been too many more of those punches before Goddard did step in. And it was that knee just completely changed the fight. And it's incredible. And we were saying, you know, I think most people on Twitter or, you know, a lot of people obviously go, what a comeback. That's got to be in line for comeback of the year. And it was certainly so far this year, the number one candidate for comeback of the year. Until the next fight, as you just said, Darren Elkins against Masad Bektik. Masad Bektik, huge betting favourite going into this fight. Darren Elkins, the biggest underdog on the card. I tweeted out before the fight, basically saying, if you can if you can get in the octagon with Darren Elkins and come out the other side as the winner, then you deserve a top 10 fight. And that's the challenge that Bektik got on his hands tonight. 
I fully expected him to pass that test. I really did. And Bektik was was doing well. He looked like he was winning the fight. He was smashing Elkins to smithereens, particularly with elbows from the uh, from top position. Elkins was a bloody mess uh, quite quite early on in that fight. But it started to it started to um, develop that Bektik just kept going to the wrestling, kept going to the wrestling, and and eventually it became his undoing and. Great commentary work from uh, Joe Rogan and Dominic Cruz. They they almost foreshadowed this in their commentary. They were explaining why why Bektik was doing it, but they also explained how dangerous it was for him to be doing that because Elkins is a stud on the on on the ground, and eventually Elkins managed to work himself an opening and huge knockout, rocked him with punches, and then that head kick just sent Bektik crashing to the mat and. The uh, the celebration was just just primal. It was it was one of the moments of the year in mixed martial arts so far. It was and for someone like Darren Elkins, who he doesn't get a lot of shine, but for those of us who cover the sport regularly, when we see his name, you know that you're going to get uh, a teak tough competitor who just leaves everything in the octagon, and uh, you don't go in there with Darren Elkins and, and come out the other side without knowing you've been in a fight and. Uh, Masab Bektik definitely knows that after Saturday night. Incredible performance from Elkins. That, Mr. Sandu, is the comeback of the year so far. Surely. I'd be, I think we'd be hard-pressed to see something like that happen again this year. It was just phenomenal. It's, it wasn't just one of the best comebacks that we've seen in MMA. I think it's one of the best comebacks I think we've seen in any combat sport. It was just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I, I really thought El- it was, Elkins was done. Absolutely done. He was His face was... Um, um, absolutely sliced and diced he was kind of bleeding from all sorts and actually again just you know uh, trying to dissect the the fight as 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 fairly as we can you know is there a is there perhaps a case where the referee could have stopped it yes there definitely is is there a case where perhaps you know darren elkins uh team and cornerman um should be throwing in the towel yes there absolutely there certainly is and we just don't see that um not just in mma but in combat sports we just don't see that um, enough, you know. Once in a blue moon, you'll see a corner throw in the towel uh, to protect their fighter, uh, but we just don't see that often enough. Now, on the flip side, on the other on the other side of things, it gives fighters like Darren Elkins just the opportunity and the time to come up with a miracle, a mir- miraculous. I can't get my words out. Uh, a miracle. Mir- I can't even get my words out. Uh, miraculous. Mirac- remarkable. Miraculous. Mir- a remarkable. Remarkable. Yes. Um, come back like that it was just it was brilliant to see and you know the the joy in his face the the scream that he gave after Bechtit was knocked out when he turned around was beautifully captured um you know you know all elbows on on twitter mma fighting estelin got a great snap of that and um yeah i mean darren elkins that's i mean i have good friend john morgan tweeted he shouldn't have to buy a drink in any bar for the rest of his life, and I'll co-sign that because it was just phenomenal. Is Darren Elkins going to be headlining a pay-per-view anytime soon? No, but he is the type of fighter that really makes you love this sport, and it kind of just shows you the the, the level of athlete, the level of heart, determination, and grit that is within these fighters um, to be able to do something like that. Just phenomenal. I don't know where Bektich goes from here. I mean, I think this will definitely be a lesson learned for him. And I think when he looks back at the at the tape, yeah, he'll see kind of the mistakes he made, and uh, hopefully, it'll make him a better fighter moving forward. 
Um, but I think Darren Elkins is just kind of almost cemented his legacy. It's etched in stone now with that kind of comeback. That's it. It's one of those, like, people will say, where were you when you saw the Darren Elkins fight? You know, it was, it was, when you hear the words Darren Elkins, you're going to think of what he did in that fight against Masab Bektik. I don't think anything he does since, and certainly not anything he's done before, I think he's going to stack up against that favourably. I think that is going to be the the defining moment of the damage, uh, Darren Elkins. Great performance from him. Very, very quickly, uh, Tyson Pedro beat Scotland's Paul Craig on the fight past prelims. Both of them went into that fight as undefeated prospects in the UFC light heavyweight division. Uh, Tyson Pedro got the job done, just looked a little bit stronger in the clinch, used his knees really well. Uh, Paul Craig will will bounce back from this, I am sure. Uh, hopefully we get to see him on a fight card on this side of the pond next time round. Uh, and hopefully that defeat doesn't have any negative impact on any potential plans for the UFC to go to Scotland. Uh, it was something that was mentioned quite a lot in the build-up to that fight. So, fingers crossed uh, we get to see Paul Craig in action again soon and that he can jump back into the wing column. Now, we, we sort of glossed over the Alistair Overeem-Mark Hunt fight Sandu and I wanted to I wanted to address that before we move on. Great performance from Overeem. The big question mark for me coming off this fight is what happens now if you're Mark Hunt? Because this there was so much uh, tumult leading into this fight. The UFC uh looked to looked to throw out Mark Hunt's legal case and that was interestingly timed because that that came out during fight week. Mm. Um which I can't imagine would have been particularly helpful for him as he prepared for the fight. Uh, he received a, a nasty cut to his shin early on in the fight. There, He thought he'd broken his leg. Uh, turns out reports suggest that he now hasn't broken his leg. Um, he thought he'd broken his, his, uh, his tibia, but he hasn't. Um, but Alistair Overeem put on a very, very calm, composed performance and knocked him out with knees and the man who's so used to face-planting his opponents into the mat ended up being the guy who got face-planted. What on earth is going to happen next with the Super Samoan? That's a good question. Um, first of all, I think from Mark's point of view, he's definitely somebody that's going to keep fighting, whether that's within the UFC or not. He's got a big family. He said it before. Um, I think we'll see him fighting for at least a couple of more years yet. Will he get to fight in the UFC? That's the big question. You know, he himself timed his lawsuit quite you know, strategically after the bout agreement with Alistair Overeem had already been signed. And, um, you know, obviously he was asked about that. That was a kind of big story concerning this particular fight coming in uh, to last Saturday night in Las Vegas. And, you know, had Mark Hunt won, I was already kind of interested to find out if uh, Joe Rogan was going to proceed with his traditional post-fight interview and uh, given what's going on at the moment um, with the UFC. So, as it turns out, he lost. Um, now, he said on his Instagram post, and at the time I think he thought he had broken his tibia, that he'll be back, which I would assume means he wants to be back in the octagon. Will the UFC give him a fight? That's very interesting. If I'm the UFC and I'm, and I'm the promoter and I've got a fighter that's suing me or my organization, probably not, because all that's going to do is just give more rise to more media attention to kind of the ongoing you know battle in the courtroom so to speak at the same time are they in a position where they can actually let him go well probably not because you need a better tour 
or perhaps what might, might, might be a better fit for him, Ryzen, out there in Japan, who will be knocking on his door and saying, hey, why don't you come fight for us? So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It'll be, I mean, this was his first fight since last July, since UFC 200. Um, and, you know, I'm just, you know, I think he got paid $750,000 flat. Um, so there's no win bonus anyway. Um, so he got three quarters of a million. Um, and I suppose if you can get that kind of paycheck out of the UFC uh, once, twice this year, great. But I don't know. I'm quite skeptical on it, on him fighting in the UFC again. What do you think, Sai? I am as well. I've got to be honest. I, there's, there's, there's different... There's different ideas in my head with this. Mm. I think, in kind of contrast to what you said, I think the UFC, the best route for the UFC is one of two things. Either you release him from his contract, which is what he's asked. And if you release him from his contract, you, 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 make, you, you basically make an agreement where you, know, you have an out-of-court settlement. Part of that settlement involves him being released from the UFC. Problem solved. Problem solved. There's no more, no more uh, legal issues. No more constantly bringing it up. No more disgruntled fighter turning up for fight week. Problem solved. Wash your hands of it. It's done. That's one option. Second option is you keep him around, but you absolutely need to keep booking him in fights because the last thing you want is to be told you're now actively holding him back because there's, a, there's pending legal proceedings. He still has to have the ability and the freedom to do his job. So if he's exclusively contracted to the UFC and all fighters contracted to the UFC are exclusively contracted, um, then they're duty-bound to make fights for him. So the thing that I would probably do is obviously get him off his medical suspension because he'll be medically suspended for a little while, I would imagine. Um and then book him in a fight as soon as possible. Auckland would be the one. Get him on that Auckland card. No brainer. At the end of the day, the UFC want to sell tickets. And Mark Hunt in the main event in Auckland is a no brainer. So I think that's the obvious next move for them. Unless they want to release him. Um, and you said Rising would be a good fit. Yeah, it would. But it would also probably be quite hypocritical of Mark Hunt to then go and fight in Rising. Because, to the best of my knowledge, there's no drug testing in Rising. Mm. Um, it's being run by a lot of the people who are involved in running Pride. There was definitely no drug, te- drug testing in Pride. It was written into their contracts that people will not be tested for drugs. So, if you're gonna, if you want to avoid fighting people who are on performance enhancers, you probably don't want to be fighting in Rising. Um, Bellator, however, might be. Uh, at sort of a happy medium, I certainly think Bellator could use him at heavyweight. You know, they're, they're, they're looking to grow their heavyweight division. Fedor versus Mark Hunt again would be one hell of a fight to put on, um, and uh, would sort of satisfy the sort of the retro, the retro leanings of all the old school uh, MMA fans, and would just be an outright exciting fight to watch. Um, so I think Bellator would be the best landing place if he got released by the UFC. But then I think the, I think the path of least resistance is 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 if if you want to keep him on, is to book him onto that Auckland card. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens because if he'd won, then that almost forces the UFC to sort of take him down a, a particular avenue. The fact that he's lost 
you know, everything's up in the air now. I think it, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a tossing up process now. Do we keep him, or do we uh, cut our losses and, and let him go? Um, interesting, interesting times ahead for Mark Hunt. What of Overeem? Because this is a guy who stepped in there. He he's had a, he's had a good run of form, Alistair Overeem. He worked his way up. Sort of, he's found a new groove in his career. Worked his way up, earned a title shot against Stipe Miocic, dropped Stipe Miocic in that fight, and looked like he might be on 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 the way to becoming UFC world champion and completing the set of championship belts. Uh, and then obviously the fight turned on its head. Stipe knocked him out with uh, with ground strikes, and then Overeem had to go back to the drawing board. This was the comeback fight. He won it with style points. And he says, he says, we're not finished yet. We're not finished yet. He he's still got his eyes on that world championship. Who would you put him in with next? Well, I think you've got to wait to see the outcome of the Stephen Merchant's JDS fight first. I think if JDS wins, then I think you've got a nice little shortcut um, for Overeem and JDS to do the damn thing again. Yeah. You know, um, you've got a nice little storyline where Overeem's beaten JDS. He wants the title. There's a little history there between the two. Um, so that would work quite well for me personally. I would be happy with that. And although he lost to Steve Pimiotis recently, the overall run he's been able to put together over the last couple of years has been very, very impressive. Now, if Miocic wins, then I don't want to see over Miocic again so soon. Uh, and, in, and in that case, what I'd like to see is Overeem against a Francis Ngannou or a Derek Lewis. Now, if you're going to go the Ngannou route, uh, people might think this might be a little bit too soon for Ngannou, but I think in the in the heavyweight division, if you've got somebody coming in on a win streak, get him up to that title as soon as possible. You know, let's see let's let's see what he's got. Let's test him. Um, and they were both cordial about the situation. You know, you know, in the post-fight press conference, they were kind of like hugging and uh, talking to the press together and whatnot. So, and I think Overeem. Um, took the call-out of Ngannou, and I don't think it was much of a call-out, but I think he was answering a question, would you be interested in flying over him? And he said yes, um, uh, in, in a flattering kind of way, out, out, of, out of respect. But how about over him and Ngannou on one, of, on one of our European cards in the second half of this year? You know, there's been talk of perhaps the UFC returning to Rotterdam. Uh, I'd love to see an Amsterdam event, but that's just a personal preference of mine. Um, uh, if they're going to go to Rotterdam... Why not have Overeem and Garnu headline that? Two Europeans, one from France, one from Netherlands. That would make a hell of a lot of sense. The other option people brought up was the idea of Derek Lewis. Again, I wouldn't mind that fight at all either. Derek Lewis is on a six-fight win streak. Uh, you know, unbelievable form. Now, he is nursing a broken foot, so I don't know how long that's going to keep him out of um, work for. And I did, um, you know, kind of see him say that he wants to take a little bit of time out just to kind of enjoy the fruits of his labor um, kind of work on his game a little bit more before he kind of you know comes back to the octagon. But um, if, if you're going to give me if you if you want a pecking order, uh, one, two, and three. If JDS wins, you do the title fight. Number two, you're doing Garnu, and number three, you're Derek Lewis. That's my kind of preference. Yeah, I love the idea of of the uh, Francis and Garnu fight in Rotterdam. Rotterdam that that f- fight week in Rotterdam last year was one of what is one of my favourite fight weeks of the year. Absolutely loved it over there and. Uh, would would love to go back for another UFC Fight Night show and over him headlining uh, for the second year in succession. He headlined against Andrei Arlovsky that week and uh, knocked him out 
in uh, in pretty spectacular fashion in front of his uh, adoring fans. That that would be great. Uh, I like I like the JDS angle as well. Uh, I think JDS versus Stipe, by the way, is going to be an absolute barnstormer. So looking forward to see how that one how that one pans out. But uh, yeah, the Ream said that he's certainly not finished yet, and I think that performance on Saturday uh, made that very very clear. And uh, I think if he isn't in a title fight next. I think he's only one win away. I completely agree with you. Really looking forward to see what happens next with British-born <laughs> Alistair the Ream over him. Hounslow, by the way, which is literally um, a stone's throw away from where I live currently in Ealing. Hounslow is... <laughs> I actually went to college in Hounslow, so there you go. There you go. There you go. You're, like, you're, almost, you're almost related. That, <laughs> that pretty much makes you related, I think. Yeah. So, uh, And if he goes and wins the heavyweight world title, it'll be Brit. Alistair Overeem wins the heavyweight championship of the world. Maybe. But um, yeah, no, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Looking forward to seeing what's next for the Ream. Check out his uh, his documentary series if you haven't uh, on his website. It is, it's the nuts. It's fantastic. That wraps up UFC 209. Uh, coming up this weekend, we've got UFC Fight Night in Fortaleza, Brazil. Now, not a stellar lineup, but a couple of interesting fights. We'll just whiz through this, Sandu. Uh, Vitor Belfort versus Kelvin Gastelum first off. The old guard versus the new guard. Gastelum now making his home at 185 pounds after a few few weighty issues as a as a welterweight. Uh, it looked like a million bucks against Tim Kennedy. Will he get the job done against Vitor Belfort on Saturday night? What do you think? Uh, yeah, uh, is a short answer. Um, I think Vitor Belfort is definitely on the tail end of his career. Um, he just can't do it anymore. Um, that may be coinciding with the fact that TRT isn't allowed anymore and is illegal uh, and he can't get his uh, therapeutic exemption use for it. Uh, make of that what you will. And Kelvin Gastelum, God bless him. You know, again, we talked about this earlier on. Uh, if there was a, a 165, 175, 185 split between the divisions, 175 would be absolutely perfect for a guy like Kelvin Gastelum, a perfect for a guy like Johnny Hendricks. But... That's just the way it's set up at the moment. So uh, I've seen a few pictures of him on Instagram, social media, and he looks like he's beefed up quite a bit. Um, so I think he'll be carrying a little bit more muscle. And he's already a very strong and stocky fighter anyway. So he's a powerhouse of a guy. I, I think he'll get it done. And I think he'll be a finish. Uh, probably first, second round uh, TKO is what I'm expecting um, of Kelvin Gastelum as he heads into this main event against B- uh, Vitor Belfort. Yeah, my my money's on a, a late a late first round stoppage. I think we'll get the usual hellfire and brimstone from Vitor Belfort in the first sixty to ninety seconds. And if Gastelum can stay out of trouble in that in that danger period, then I think uh, the gas tank runs dry pretty quick um, for Vitor Belfort these days. And uh, as we've seen in some of his more recent fights, once he goes off the edge, that's it. There's not much left, and then uh, he's a sitting duck. I think Gaslam gets this one done. Another legend is in action in the co-main event, and it's it's kind of a similar thing here. You've got Mauricio Shogun Hua, who's been in there with a who's who at 205 pounds. There's John Valante, who uh, he's looking to move up the 205 pound division. We always talk about the light heavyweights needing fresh blood. Valante's been around for a while. He's in a great training camp over there with Sarah Longo training alongside his good friend Chris Weidman. This could be a breakout fight for him, but can he get it done against Mauricio Shogun? Oh, what do you think? Not sure. It's a bit of a, a pick-and-fight for me, actually, because uh, Hua has shown a bit of form recently. And actually, 
this um, plays in nicely to what you were saying earlier on, Simon. It's the UFC using legends uh, in markets that make sense. And obviously, you know, when you go to Brazil, um, you want to try and get as many of the recognizable figures um, from from Brazil that have uh, obviously had a massive impact on the sport. And Mauricio Shogun Hua is definitely one of them. I'm not sure. Um, I, th- I think my head says Volante, perhaps by decision. But I've got a, a bit of a, a gut feeling that perhaps Shogun might be able to knock him out or at least get a TKO finish on, over him. Uh, Volante's kind of alternated between wins and losses recently as well, so he's not exactly showing the best form either. Although, you know, like you said, Simon, he does come from a, an absolutely fantastic camp. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always hard to pick against Brazilians in Brazil. So I'm just going to just slightly lean towards Hua in this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Volante just because I think there's more upside left for him. And I think if he comes in there in, in, in top shape, I think he's got he's got it in him to beat Mauricio Shogun. If if Shogun turns up at hundred percent and really goes for it, then you'd have to side with him. I just think Valente might just have enough. Best fight on this fight card precedes the co-main. Edson Barboza versus Benel Dariush. That is an absolute cracker of a fight. Uh, one of the best grapplers at one hundred and fifty-five pounds, who's also developed some fight-ending punch power over his time in the UFC taking on the single most destructive kicker I think I've ever seen since Mirko Krokop. Uh, Edson Barboza is an absolute animal. I'm really looking forward to watching this fight. It is a pick'em fight. The, 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 the styles will clash. I think if Barboza keeps it standing, he pieces him up. But it's going to be a really interesting fight, Sandu. You going with Barboza for this one, or are you going with uh, Dariushi's grappling? I'm going with Barboza. Um, I think he's got a, a decent amount of takedown defense, and I think he, I've, I've seen him. Uh, I've seen enough of him now, where he's able to kind of uh, wrangle his way out of um, you know really awkward situations on the mat uh, from really high level grapplers. So uh, again, it's, it's, it's going to be a very you know evenly contested fight, I think. Um, but I'm just gonna, just going to go with Barboza on this one. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. There are the three fights at the top of the card. Just to very quickly run down who else we have: Juicy Formiga. Taking on Ray Borg at flyweight. Betch Cahaya is back in action on home soil against Marion Renault. And uh, welterweight Alex Oliveira, the cowboy, taking on Tim Means. That'll be a good fight, kicking off the main card. Also, one to watch out for is the featured preliminary bout Francisco Trinaldo against Kevin Lee. I think if Kevin Lee wins that one, I would expect him to get a big push from the UFC towards the back end of this year. Godofredo Pepe taking on Carl Bochniak. Sergio Moraes taking on uh, late replacement, David Ramos. Um, that'll be an interesting fight. Both of those guys, very, very good grapplers. Uh, Michelle Prezeres taking on Josh Berkman. And we have three fight pass prelims. Uh, Honey Jason against uh, Jeremy Kennedy. Rani Yaya versus Joe Soto. And the soldier boy, the South African, Gareth McClellan taking on Paolo Henrique Costa. That is... UFC Fight Night Belfort versus Gastelum. That takes place on Saturday night from Fortaleza, Brazil. That will be live in the UK on BT Sport, most likely BT Sport 2. Um, I have to check the listings for that. And obviously Fight Pass will have the prelims for you if you want those as well. That's our UFC lineup all lined up. Very quickly, Sandu, just wanted to mention on Saturday we have a big show on British soil, ACB 54. Uh, ACB are a rising Russian promotion. They've got some significant backing from a financial perspective. 
and uh, they've lined up a colossal fight card. I don't know if you've got the fight card in front of you, Sandu, but 20 fights. 20, that's a lot, that's a lot 20 of fights. fights. That's, yeah. that's madness. But there are some good fights among them, I've got to be honest. The main event sees uh, Luke Barnett, the big slow, uh, big favourite for the Brit Pack, taking on the, uh, I don't know if he's the former KSW champion or the current KSW champion, Mamed Khalidov, who is legit. He's excellent. He's, uh, he's got a 38-fight record, and he's got 32 career wins. He's solid, and he's taken on Luke Barnett in that main event. No championship on the line. That's just your main event, so that'll be three rounds. Uh, Iron Pascu taking on Aslan Beck's side off. But there's a load of British talent on this card. Um, Saul Rogers, the hangman, the man who I think we all agree should be in the UFC right now, he's taking on Pat Healy, who not that long ago was knocking on the door of a championship fight himself in the UFC uh, before uh, a failed drug test derailed his UFC career and he never really came back the same. Uh, We've got an all-British clash at lightweight, uh, sorry, a featherweight, as Mike Wilkinson and Brendan Luchnane go head-to-head for the second time. I believe they fought just after the tough smashes. They were both on that. That's going to be a good fight to watch. Um, who else have we got in this fight card? I'm just scrolling down. We've got some decent fights. Uh, Nam Fan, if you remember him from his time in the UFC, he's going to face the Hammer, Rob Whiteford, on that card. There's an all-Scottish class, Chris Bungard and Ian Feenan. Danny Mitchell, the cheesecake assassin, is back in action against Andy DeVent, former, or I think he was, was he ever the Bama champion? I think he might have been the Lonsdale middleweight champion for Bama. Uh, Kane Musa is in action. Eden Newton is in action. There's a lot of reasons to uh, to check this out on Saturday night. I think they're going to stream it on YouTube, Sandu. So, uh, YouTube or Facebook. So, um, if you haven't got a ticket for the show, it's at the Manchester Arena. Um, I think there's going to be plenty of opportunities to watch it and you won't need to fork out any money for it. So, uh, good news for uh, for any MMA fans who want to get some get some fights in the bank early doors on Saturday before staying up for UFC Fight Night. That is pretty much all we have. I mean, that's that's a lot of fights. We've got 20 fights uh, coming from Manchester. Oh, one thing I was going to mention, the show, Sandu, is ACB 54, yeah. Supersonic. I'll let you into a little secret. Go on. That was my idea. <laughs> was it? I named the show, yeah. Yeah. How did that come about? What's the story behind that one then? Uh, there's, uh, there's, a, there's an English chap uh, who, who looks after ACB on this side of the pond. And um, he, uh, he, was talk- he, he called me up one day and he said, we need a name. We need a name for the show. But it can't be to Manchester United or Manchester City. It just needs to say, it needs to say, it needs to have a Manchester connotation, but it needs to be neutral. So it isn't. Yeah. And uh, one of the things with ACB is their their slogan is uh, less show, more action. And if you've seen any of their shows, they, they like fight pass pacing looks pedestrian compared to how these guys do it. They're literally bringing people in for the next fight as the, you know, the fighters are leaving the cage from the previous fight. There's literally no turnaround time at all. They, they, it's, it's non-stop. So obviously it, I, I said, well, supersonic's good. Cause you know, it, it implies sort of pace and speed, which the show's known for, but it's Manchester, you know, it's Oasis, it's supersonic. 
And then shortly after that, Oasis brought out their film Supersonic, so it kind of fit that. So, uh, so yeah, so yeah, so when you see Supersonic on the poster, um, Brit you know who Pack, it came from. Brit yeah. Pack listeners can know that came from me, and I'm not, I'm you know, I'm not BSing you here. That is truth. So, uh, so there you go. I, I, ACB fifty four Supersonic as named by the Brit Pack. So, well, speaking uh, speaking of uh, Manchester or that neck of the woods, uh, this should be a nice little uh, segue for you, Simon. Uh, before we kind of go into the, the Q&A section this week, British UFC middleweight champion Michael Bisping uh, had a press conference with one returning Canadian legend, George Rush St. Pierre. The UFC held uh, a press conference. They, they announced the fight last week. They held a press conference um, after uh, the weigh-ins uh, on Friday and... Uh, it was it was definitely newsworthy to say the least. You had Michael Bisping, who first of all rocked up uh, a little late. Uh, he blamed it on um, the car being at the at the win versus being at Trist. And you know, if anyone's been to Vegas, uh, the win and Encore are sister hotels. They look exactly the same. And I've actually been there. I've been in a situation where when maybe a cab or an Uber or something has been at the wrong hotel, or I've found myself at the wrong hotel, getting the two confused. But he eventually did rock up, and uh, he came out swinging, Simon. He came out swinging. He did. Um, had he had a drink? This is the question. And I, I he was like GSP accused him of being drunk, and Bisbing didn't deny being drunk. Um, he was very croaky, but I can. That's easily attributable to uh, to being on a plane. If he's had to be on a plane, you get you get that from the aircon or whatever. He might have just been nursing a bit of a cold, but he was pretty fast and loose with the uh, with the insults, and he was he, you know he was he was diving in there from from a verbal perspective. May he have had a beer, a pre-show cocktail, possibly. I don't know, but what we did get was was. Uh, Plenty of uh, plenty of combative vernacular from Mr. Bisbing. He called him a lizard at one point. He called him a midget at one point. Um, he said he was a great athlete, but he's not a fighter. And I think that's going to be the narrative that runs through the whole thing. Yeah. It's the the supreme athlete, George St. Pierre. And he's the guy, Sandu, when, when I was uh, working for national newspapers and trying to get people to buy into the UFC. GSP was always the example I used because back in the day when he was in his pomp, he was training strength and conditioning with Linford Christie. He was training jiu-jitsu with 10-time ultimate weight world jiu-jitsu champion Roger Gracie. He was training boxing with the great Freddie Roach. He was training wrestling with the Canadian Olympic wrestling team who invited him to compete at London 2012 even though he'd never wrestled competitively for Canada. Uh, and he had to turn that down because of his UFC commitments. Um, and he's got this incredible gymnastic ability as well. Um, and, and he obviously trains out of TriStar, with, with, you know, which is one, you know, one of the most respected MMA gyms in the world. He's got a little bit of everything, and he's good at everything. And he's got black belts in about three or four different martial arts. Um, he was the shining example and he is like, if you're building the perfect mixed martial artist, 
The closest thing you get in real life is probably George St. Pierre. But he's going to have to get in the trenches with Michael Bisbing. And there aren't many people better than, than the Count when it comes to getting in the trenches, facing, uh, facing adversity and coming through. We've seen that in his recent fights. Um, and uh, I, think it's made, I think it's going to make for a fantastic event. And they haven't announced when it's going to be yet. I think the plan is that it will be probably the headline act, maybe the co-main in International Fight Week um, in July in Las Vegas. Um, and I hope I hope that is what happens, and I hope they stack that card, and it gives Bisbing the big the big payday that he's never really had, and uh, that would be the perfect the perfect thing for his for his career. But uh, yeah, the press conference just just got us. Just got the juices flowing, Sando. I was excited by it. Um, there was plenty going. And, uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, what were your key takeaways from that? I think the key takeaway for me is uh, the reason this fight is taking place. This isn't Michael Bisping's, um, I suppose, course of action, course of request. You know, Dana White said that you know, you know the, the GSP camp and the people that represent him when they've been in negotiation with the UFC. And this negotiation has been going on since last October. So, and Bisping has always been in the loop from day one that GSP, if he comes back, he wants to crack at Bisping and he wants to crack at that middleweight title. So any time since October, when you, after the Dan Henderson fight, when you saw Bisping start to make waves with regards to potentially fighting GSP, just know that now looking back uh, in hindsight that, that's the fight that was at play. So I think he, at the time, was just trying to do the best he could to, to try to create some buzz for it, do his bits and pieces, on, you know, and to promote the, the fight that was potentially around the corner. But people need to remember that this isn't Michael Bisping's um, request. GSP has brought the fight to the UFC. The UFC, are obviously, uh, they're in a situation where they need draws. GSP is definitely going to do that for them. And for them... They had to kind of nix the idea of um, of one Yoel Romero fighting Michael Bisping next and give that opportunity to GSP just to get him back, just to get him back, get him on the books again, get him headlining a pay-per-view. And, and that's where we're at now. Dana White said at the press conference that he's going to take care of Yoel Romero uh, financially. So we'll see what, you know, what happens there. Michael Bisping has also kind of said that you know he doesn't expect to get a scratch on him uh, in his, the GSP fight. And he'd be willing to give a pretty quick turnaround and fight Yoel uh, within, I suppose, six weeks or so, or six or eight weeks. Um, so he's gone on the record and said that. Of course, we'll still need to find out how the fight plays out before anything can, you know, determine what happens next. But at the bottom, the bottom line here is, and we go back to the conversation we had last week, and you know, nobody really wants to see divisions get held up, right? You can make the exception here and there. I'm comfortable with this exception in the middle middleweight division right now. And I go back to everything that you just said, Simon, about George St. Pierre. He, for me, is arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time, as we currently stand. No PD issues, um, been a man of integrity, held in very high regard, carried the sport, the UFC, and himself in with the utmost respect in regards to... He's the kind of fighter you can show an example if, uh, if you've got a, a five, six-year-old... Uh, son and daughter who want to perhaps look somebody of, of you know in, in an inspirational way he's a perfect example right very clean cut and whatnot 
And you want to, and me personally, I want to see great athletes attempt to achieve greatness. That's what I, that's what I love seeing. And just for the just for the fact that he's got the cojones to try and jump up a massive weight class. And again, I think this has been a running theme throughout the entire podcast this week. You know, if there was say a super welterweight division at a one seventy five for the for him to be able to jump into and classify himself as a two weight champion. That would be, I think, a little bit more reasonable. But he's jumping up big here to 185. And although he's gone on the record and said that he's going to walk around at 190 or close to 200 pounds, that's still, you know, in a in a weight class where guys are cutting from 200 plus and Michael Bisping's in that category, you know. And, uh, and the, I suppose the most interesting takeaway I took from the press conference with Bisping was basically almost being insulted that he felt as though GSP thinks that he's an easy fight. And that's why he's been campaigning for this middleweight title fight upon his return to the UFC, right? So I think that was interesting uh, to see Bisping actually come out and say that. And that probably will be the motivation for him going into this camp is to beat George St. Pierre and say, hey, you're actually a welterweight. How dare you come up to middleweight and think that you could beat me? And on top of that, think that you can jump into a title fight and think it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. So I'm all sold now. I'm sold in this fight. Um, And again, I think, Hopefully, the long-term effects of this are not negative. And again, I know that's kind of like everyone's worry is what does this mean for the UFC and uh, the WMEIMG regime? Are we going to start to see fighters jump up and down willy-nilly and titles not get defended properly and as they should? My hope is that that's not what we're going to get. And I think that if GSP is to win the middleweight championship, I still think he's a man of integrity that he'd at least want to defend it once or twice uh, to give respect to the division he's entering. We won't be able to answer these questions until after the fight. Right now, am I sold on the fight? Yes. Am I looking forward to the fight? Yes. Uh, and God bless George St. Pierre for wanting to make a return after three years out of the game. And God bless Michael Bisping for accepting it because that will be the biggest payday of his career. And I think he's gone on the record of saying that the payday will be so high that he could actually look after his family for the rest of his days after this one fight. So um, I'm, on, I'm all on board for this one. Yeah, I am. I am. I have to say... If George St. Pierre were to win the title, the thought of him and Yoel Romero would keep me awake at night. <laughs> that is a terrifying prospect. That is a terrifying prospect. But uh, but no, Michael Bisbing versus George St. Pierre, I think it's a fight that makes all the sense in the world. If you look at the fights that GSP could reasonably come back to, I think this is the one that probably makes the most sense all around. If you sort of listed the pros and cons for each option... I think the Bisbing fight makes the most sense. Um, we'll get more detail on on when it's going to be. Uh, I think it'll probably be, as I say, International Fight Week. Yep. I would assume the main event, but who knows? They might have something even bigger planned for the main event, but they like to stack the deck on International Fight Week. I think that'll be UFC 213. I think off the top of my head, it's going to be UFC 213. Um, so uh, stick that date in your diary. That is likely to be the date that we see Michael Bisbing take on George Rush St. Pierre. That pretty much wraps up the, uh, the news and, uh, you know, recapping everything for the week. Um, we've got a few questions to run through before we get out of here. So uh, fire away, Mr. Sandu. Let's get these done. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to start with Daryl Chumbley, who actually took a screenshot, such as the length of his question. And he says... With all of Woodley's recent comments about the lack of respect from the UFC and fans and not getting money fights, 
How much damage, in brackets, if any, do you think that the fight has done to his brand and bargaining power with the UFC? I personally think Tyron Woodley's stock couldn't be any lower than it is right now. I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on why he hasn't resonated with fans, perhaps like other fighters have in different weight classes and whatnot. Perhaps you could put that down to his demeanor, some of the things that he said uh, in reaction to fights or asking for fights uh, in the position as a champion. Perhaps you could put it down to the UFC not put, you know, putting, in his opinion, the promotional hustle and muscle behind him as a champion and his reign. I don't know. But it's quite clear that since he's become champion, you know, he hasn't resonated with the fans that other champions has in the past. And yeah. I think, and I think, given that performance on Saturday night, when you've got fans in the arena chanting fight, 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 that's a very, very low, I suppose, and, and sad state of affairs. Uh, I don't know how he's going to bounce back from it. To be honest with you, I think the only way he can potentially bounce back is by fighting um, the, the number one true welterweight contender. And it's unfortunate. It's very, very unfortunate. And I still um, scratch my head at why the UFC did this. They put Damian Meyer and Jorge Masvidal just a week ago. Could they have? Could they perhaps not have waited a week just to see the outcome of this fight? I think everyone's really behind Damian Meyer and the, the string of wins he's put together in his welterweight division since, since coming down from middleweight. And, you know, again, he's another Brazilian legend and he's someone that would give Tyron Woodley, you know, you know quite a few problems. And, and credit to Woodley in the post-fight press conference for, for mentioning Meyer as somebody that should be fighting for the title. Um, I think if, if they book Woodley and Meyer next, then great. And maybe just rip up this contract with, with Masvidal. But as it stands, we're going to have to wait and to see the outcome of the Masvidal and Maya fight before we can uh, move forward. And who knows what might get booked in between, you know? Woodley's, you know, campaigning for money fights, Simon. So you've got Nick Diaz, who's waiting to get off the off the bench. He's, you know, legally available uh, to, to jump into a fight right now. Um, I don't know. But in regards to the question itself, Simon... In regards to his brand and his stock and where he currently stands within the MMA community and the UFC, where is Tyron Woodley for you right now? He's he's not in a good spot. He's not in a good spot. I mean, yes, he's the champion, so we have to remember that. He does hold the belt, um, and uh, nobody's been able to beat him since he's won the belt. So that's that's a fact that we just need to keep, keep mindful of. But I think the, he hasn't come across... As perhaps the most, I don't know whether it's whether it's humble or likable or what it is. Just some of the some of the things he's done and some of the things he said, I think have just rubbed some of you know, a portion of the fan base the wrong way. And I think it all stemmed from when he knocked out Robbie Lawler. There was an opportunity there where everyone everyone was very excited by the fact that Tyron Woodley has just run through Robbie Lawler. It was a remarkable performance. Lawler's known for taking all this punishment and walking through it. And he got absolutely blown out of the water by Tyron Woodley. And pretty much the, the, you know, the, the next thing that Woodley did after that was to go on, um, on Fox, split screen with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, who everybody knew was going to be next. Everybody was waiting for Woodley to say, yes, I'm fighting you next. Let's do this and go from there. And he pulled the switcheroo on him and he said, well, 
I don't know. You know, maybe what you know, maybe I'll try and fight George Saint Pierre or or Nick Diaz or whatever. And I think that was the beginning of of of. I hesitate to use the word backlash, but I think there is there is a certain certain section of the fan base who aren't huge fans of Tyron Woodley, and I think that was the beginning of it. Uh, I've got no problem with him. Um, you know, I think he's I think he he's taking a, a rather pragmatic approach to things and. Fans just like to see people just going in gung ho, and he certainly isn't doing that. So there's that issue as well. Um, it's 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 difficult, you know. You can't say things in one hand and then go out and turn in a performance like he did on Saturday. You can't say I'm going to be the greatest of all time, and then you spend five rounds running backwards around the edge of the cage against a guy who, if you're the greatest of all time, you should be putting him away. Especially when you nearly knocked him out in the first fight, so it's 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 you know it's difficult. It's difficult on paper. Tyron Woodley has everything there to be a star, but there's just something about the way he goes about things that just rubs some people up the wrong way, and it's unfortunate because he's a, he's a serious talent, and hopefully the next fight he gets and the next fight after that will be an opportunity to really see the real Tyron Woodley inside as well as outside the cage and then hopefully the fans will come round and appreciate him for the athlete uh, that he is Sonny Dangel tweets in and, and again Simon I think just by pure chance this has uh, turned into a bit of a running theme in today's show and uh, and Sonny tweets in and says which fighters could be in the 165 pound division oh, blimey. with Khabib and he asks Cerrone question mark and who else I mean you know what I think would be a, uh, an amazing scenario uh, and perhaps one day potentially could do with GSP somewhere down the road? What if you had GSP versus Conor McGregor for a brand new title at £165? There's no one in that division because it's a brand new weight class. You've got GSP who thinks he can make 155 Well, okay, well, how about you just make 165 and let's be a little bit careful with that. You've got Conor McGregor who you know weighed in at 168 uh, when he fought uh, Nate Diaz. So 165, I think, would be optimal for him. And again, this would perhaps mean him dropping the 155-pound title. Um, so it's not going to be, I suppose, you know, stopping that division from moving forward. Um, and yeah, you've got you've got a division there that you can start to build. You've got so many um, lightweights that are perhaps a little bit too big for the class. You've got tons of welterweights that are a little bit undersized. But I think, I really, really think that the those weight classes should be just rejigged slightly. I really want to see a 165-pound weight class. I think the welterweight division should become 175 pounds. And then you just move forward from there. And uh, then further down the road, you could think about some sort of cruiserweight, you know, weight limit at 195 and you can figure that stuff out later but I just, I just don't think you've got enough fighters and enough elite level fighters at the the weight classes above middleweight whereas I think in between lightweight and welterweight where I, I believe the bulk and the majority of the fighters in the overall UFC roster reside in you've got plenty of guys there that can make up a healthy division your thoughts on that side yeah I think what you would have to do specifically with this this weight class i think you have to be open to fighters competing in more than one cl- one weight class at a time because 
in the main, they've, they've preferred fighters to almost put their cards on the table and say, I'm going to compete in this division or I'm going to compete in that division. If you take a look at the top 15 fighters in the UFC lightweight rankings, I would suggest half of them would probably be happier fighting at 100, 165 pounds. Khabib, Ferguson, Dos Anjos, who has moved up to welterweight, Nate Diaz, Michael Chiesa, uh, Francisco Trinaldo, probably Gilbert Melendez, uh, Al Iaquinta, Will Brooks. All these guys, I think... Nate Diaz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nate, I mean, all of those guys, In that, I've just reeled off probably eight or nine of the top 15 there. And I think all of those guys, if there was an option for them to fight at 165, would fight at 165. Because it's an easy, it's easier for them. But then again, if they're all going to fight at one sixty-five, what have you got left at one fifty-five? And then you have maybe a few of those guys I mentioned saying, "Well, maybe I'll stick around at one fifty-five. The field's a bit thinner. I can work my way to the top a bit quicker." So, I think you need to allow fighters to compete on two fronts when the weight classes are a little bit closer together like this. But I think a one sixty-five weight class would be awesome. Um. I don't know how many welterweights would look to move down. GSP would be one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking through the top 15 now. I mean, they're all big guys, most of them. Masvidal, maybe. Possibly. Maybe not. Cerrone could. Um, Tarek Safadine maybe could. Um, Ellenberger maybe could. But most of them, I think, would struggle to get lower than, than 170. So I think most of the most of the people you'd see in that 165 division will probably be lightweights moving up rather than welterweights moving down. And I don't have a problem with that. And I think I I agree and we've spoken about this on the show. 10 pound gap. Have a 10 pound restructure just basically rip up the weight classes, start again. So right, we're going to start again. Um and if you're a champion in the current division, we will put you in a title fight for the division above or below if you're if we're going to get rid of your weight class, and 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 do that, um, and go from there. I think I think it's safer for the fighters. I also think there needs to be some sort of rule in place whereby fighters are fighting at their optimal weight, are fighting at their natural weight or closer mm. to their natural weight, and aren't having to go through this extreme weight cutting, um, even if people have got it down to a fine art and are able to do it um it's still not healthy it's still not healthy um and i don't know what can be done with that with obviously with all the different athletic commissions and stuff but that's a whole other a whole other can of worms but yeah i love the idea of the 10 pound weight gaps but i think if you had a 165 division you could probably take eight to ten of the top 15 in the lightweight division they'd probably all feel more comfortable fighting at 165 Michael Banner tweets in and says, do you think Thompson and Woodley's pay-per-view stock had dropped since that fight? Well, look, I don't think there was much stock in there in the first place, to be honest with you. They both fought at Madison Square Garden. The reason Woodley's been campaigning for the GSP fight is he wants a big money fight. The reason he was even you know, teasing uh, the, the fight with Michael Bisping um, at, at a catch weight is because... He wants a money fight. I think he realizes that, and we'll you know we'll see what the reports are with regards to how you know UFC 209 did on pay per view, what the numbers are. Um, I don't suspect they're going to be that high. Um, and like I said before, I think his stocks you know it's not as 
it hasn't been as low as it is right now anyway. So I think when you do rebook uh, Woodley in a title fight, it's going to have to be um, a double header. It's going to have to be a co-main event to perhaps a, a fight that's bigger if he wants to actually cash out and get a big money uh, payday. Um, and obviously Wonderboy, he's now had two cracks, ain't got it done. Um, I don't suspect he's going to be in a title fight anytime soon, so that means he won't be headlining a pay-per-view anytime soon. So that's a, a non-starter with regards to where his potential drawing ability is in the pay-per-view world. Your, your assessment of that, side? I think the fight on Saturday night was the fight that would have determined their pay-per-view stock moving forward, I think. The, end, you know, the reason why we're seeing this fight again, it was a rematch that needed to happen from a sporting context. It wasn't a fight that the public were absolutely screaming for, although mm. I think most people knew that it was a fight that made sense. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think people would have been up in arms if they'd have made a Damien Meyer fight, for example, instead. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there'd have been some disappointment, but I don't think they'd have kicked off that, that much about it. I think the if this fight had gone a different way and it had turned into an absolute barn burner and someone had emerged victorious after an incredible fight, then you can say, right, they're off and running. They're on their way to becoming a pay-per-view star. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson has got an awful lot going for him. And if he'd have won that fight spectacularly by knockout, you can imagine him getting a real push. Um, it didn't work out that way. Tyron Woodley has got a lot going for him. And you can imagine that if he won that fight spectacularly, he'd he'd have got a fair push as well. But he didn't. He he won by the thinnest margin possible. Um, it, it really is. You know, they're both ground zero in terms of pay per view. They really are. And uh, it's going to take. I mean, for Woodley because he's the champion, he's going to take one or two spectacular performances for people to really start caring about him as a headliner. I think. Yep, I agree. Uh, final question comes in from Nathan Clapson, who says, Who's next for Dad Bod Extraordinaire, Dan Kelly? He's 6-1 and one and calling for a ranked opponent. Would you favor him in any matchup against a top 10 opponent? Well, I'll tell you what. Dan Kelly wants a ranked opponent. Let's have a look at the top 15 of the middleweight division. You've got to give him something between 10 and 15. If that's the route you're going to go and give him a ranked opponent, 10 15. So here's... Here's um, 10 to 15. So let's, let's, number 10 is Kelvin Gastelum, but he's already booked. So let's forget about Gastelum for now anyway. Let's go from 11 to 15. 11 is Christoph Jocko. 12 is Talis Lates. 13 is Uriah Hall. 14 is Tim Boach. And 15 is Sam Alvey. And these are all according to the official UFC rankings. Simon, I don't know about you, but I'll be down for any of those guys to face Dan Kelly. And I know there's a card coming up, I believe. Uh, well, there's one in Auckland, which isn't too far um, from from his neck of the woods in Australia. There might probably be another card in Australia later on this year anyway, uh, I would imagine. But um, I, I'm, I'm happy for any of those chaps to, to get in there with Dan Kelly. What about you? Yeah, I, I'm looking at them and I can see Uriah Hall piecing him up in the stand-up. I can see Tim Boach knocking him out viciously. I could see Sam Alvey knocking him out or it not being a good fight. I think I think there's two fights there that really stand out. The Jocko fight, um, I think, might be an interesting one. 
it, it would be a, a fight that you could put on in Europe, a little bit closer to home for, for Dan Kelly in terms of time zone. Um, would make perhaps a bit more sense for the Australian market. I don't know. This is assuming Auckland isn't doable. I mean, Auckland is obviously the you know the ideal place. I think stylistically, in terms of matching people up, I think the latest fight might be the best. I think you've got a, a, a guy whose background is, is, is judo against a guy whose background is, is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think, I think that might make for a very interesting matchup. Um, I, 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 I think I'd worry for, for Dan Kelly if he ended up in there with Boach or with Uriah Hall. Um, maybe a bit less so with Alvi, but definitely with Hall and Boach. Uh, I think latest and Jocko are probably the two. And if you push me, I'd probably do the latest fight. I think if you if you can get Talis latest over to uh, to Auckland, I think that would be the fight to make. And that wraps up the Q and A segment, Simon. Thank you everyone uh, for tweeting them in. Uh, as a reminder, you don't have to wait for us to give you a call to action on Sunday or Monday. Throughout the week, if something pops to your head and you want to ask us, tweet us at the Britpack MMA. I'll give it a like from our account so that you know. It's going to get asked on the following week's episode. So thank you very much. Brilliant. As well as the Britpack MMA on Twitter, you can follow Sandu at Sandu MMA and you can follow me at Simon Head. Our website is thebritpackmma.com. You will find everything you need there. Um, but there are other ways of getting the show. You can obviously stream it live directly from the website. Uh, you can get it via SoundCloud. You can get it via iTunes. You can get it via Stitcher. And you can get it via Acast. So got any of those apps you can subscribe to the show through those and get those on your mobile device no problem at all that was show number 30 of the brick pack enjoyed that one we have ufc fight night for fortaleza this weekend um we have acb 54 in manchester this weekend we will come back with news of both on next week's show where we look ahead to the big one ufc fight night in london as Jimmy the poster boy Manoa looks to pick up another big win in that light heavyweight division when he takes on Corey Overtime Anderson in the main event. Until then, enjoy the fights and we'll speak to you next week.